from the time that they pronounced me dead was a good 45 minutes. They cut my clothes and then they paddled my heart because my heart had stopped. And I could see people screaming and crying, but I didn't realize that was actually my physical body because I was somewhere else. The only thing that I could feel, if you could imagine absolute love and peace, there wasn't anything else to be felt. I was greeted by people I had known in the past. I'm back home again. Incredibly safe and felt at home. Welcome back to Round Trip Death and part two of our interview with Dr. Raymond Moody and Paul Perry. We ended episode one with the question, what proof is there of life after death? And we'll pick it up from there. I love that term and I've heard it so many times that their experience was more real than real. And those of us that have not been through it will probably never understand that, but more real than real. But for the antagonists are still going to say, Paul, your book says proof. What other proof do you have? Well, I think that many of the skeptics, I still have to use that word because I'm trained to use it. Many of the skeptics start at this and other subjects. They start at this subject with disbelief. And what I always say to them is, if you turn that around and started studying this subject from, from a point of view of belief instead of disbelief, you would arrive at completely different summation for yourself. And I think that's really true. I think a lot of people just, they get this, well, so skeptics have a certain way of believing. Sorry about that. Yeah, oh, it is true. I mean, they're, they're ossified. They're ossified. And if you can break that and say, well, you know, read this as a believer as opposed to someone who doesn't believe. And then if you don't believe it at the end, that's fine. But uh, you're not giving it a chance if you start with disbelief. And uh, and that works so that the people can do it. I would rather take that just a step further and say, please start with, I don't know. Get Try to get rid of your preconceived notion of I either believe or I don't believe, and I'm sure of it because some of us are just so hard-headed and so stubborn, it doesn't matter what you say, you're not going to change our belief because that somehow puts me down. So instead, let's be humble enough to say, I don't know now, I'm going to study it, and I'm going to read and learn and listen. Some people do their believing by the numbers. You know, it's like a instruction book. You got to think, and 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 these unreflected skeptics who don't even know what the word means, if they really penetrated what their theory is, it's called the technical term for that is humanism, is what they are, and it's the the so-called skeptics are part of the American Humanist Society, and humanism not in the sense of of the. Thomas More and Erasmus and so on, that group. But the modern humanist movement is a religion that was formed because there were a lot of atheists who had uh, had, had church and they, they had decided there's no God, but they still were connected to that social thing. And they have to have, they thought they had to have some rituals for marriage or funerals or whatever. So it's a religion. And it's the religion is that uh, there is no God, but that church is a good thing. <laughs> and uh, so that's what humanism is. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing that these people are perpetrating on the minds of the young people because it, it's a very important thing to learn about the history of Western thought. 
and where all these things came from. And if you misrepresent one of the foundational intellectual movements of Western thought, then you're spoiling the minds of all these kids. And that's what those skeptics, actually humanists, are doing. And the guy who founded this was a great guy. I want to take this in a little bit more personal direction now. So Paul and Raymond, all of the things that you've learned through your studies and your interviews and everything else, how has it affected your life? Has it changed the way you view things? Tell me about what it's done for you. Well, it's a long process because I found out about this when I was 18 years old, and now I'm 79. And so I can't separate it very well. I do know that, see, I was, my dad was a medic surgeon in World War II at the Pacific Theater. I'm sure he saw gosh awful, terrible, horrible stuff. And, but they didn't talk about it, that group, but the way it, it manifested in my life was he was very hostile to religion and so i just didn't you know have any experience that and and uh my astronomy was my thing and the idea of an afterlife eric i remember specifically when my awakening to the notion of the afterlife was reading plato's republic because plato became my hero after page three of the Republic when I was 18 years old, okay? And, and so um, the fact that Plato took this question of an afterlife seriously was what woke me up to it. Because I, I, if a guy like that thinks there's something to this, maybe I should start thinking about it. But all through this, I just, uh, I didn't know what to think. My process, like I said, has ended up as I give up. It's not that I can draw a logical conclusion but then I can't think my way out of this. That in that context, it, I just don't know to what degree it's affected the way I am because I was 18 years old when I, I, I don't know. It's hard. I can't really imagine how my life might have unfolded without that. How about you, Paul? You know, it, it has made me, which is very important in my profession, it has made me far more curious about really everything in the world. Because you start to realize that the person who's next to you, based on our, our, our research and based on other people's research, has a spirit. They're, they're, they're spiritual beings as well as physical beings. And uh, uh, I think it, that has changed my view toward mankind a lot is that people have a spirit. They have a spiritual life. Oftentimes, you know, I just had this happen this week. Someone started talking to me, a guy who's 80 years old, and he said, I've never thought about my spiritual life. And it's only recently through, he's a good friend, and through, through books that I've given him and then other events that have taken place. He said, it's, uh, and I, I realize I'm way behind in studying my spiritual life. And, and I feel like I'm not way behind, but I also feel like there's so much more to know. And it's that need to know that really drives me on. So that's how it's changed me. That's interesting. Another thing just on that line that I'm sure you've heard as many times more than I have is uh, people say that they now realize we're all connected. Right. Explain what you think they're talking about with that statement. 
I've had it explained a whole bunch of different ways to me. I've got a thought. And uh, the way it's come to me is I am not religious still, but I have a relationship with God. And I, like I say, I just talk to God all the time. He's never said a word to me about religion. So I'm not interested in religion, but I have a personal relationship with God. In those terms, this is hard to say, but um, the ultimate object of skepticism, okay, in, the, in addition to the intellectual side of it, was calmness. And even David Hume said, you know, he even challenged the notion of the, you know, that he said, as to the impressions which arise from the senses, he said, in my opinion, it is utterly beyond reason, like the capacity of the rational method, to determine whether these impressions arise from the object or from the creative power of our mind or from the author of our being. And that has always, even before I met Hume, has been obvious to me that you can't really know. What is happening in our society? See, and Hume said, even with that profound skepticism, he said, see that, but I go to the dinner party just like everybody else, right? He said, and he was very social. Yeah, it's just I go through the I do like anybody else, even though the skepticism goes on that I live my life. And and so that and Piero too said that same thing. See, it's about this life we're living, is it makes you calm in this life. And what I think is happening in our society is that now something that was outrageous in nineteen seventy, now in twenty twenty three is just part and parcel of common sense. And the older you get, is the, the older you get, the more percentage of the people you know your age have had some sort of experience of stepping over to another world. So that oddly, silly, what was extraordinary in 1970 has now kind of settled in to common sense because, you know, if somebody hasn't had a near-death experience, they know somebody who has. So this has been integrated into the world in a way so that it's just part of the social world that the skeptic is in bed, embedded in. Any other thoughts on that, Paul, on how we're all connected? I have this thing that I, call, I did called the Denny's Experiment. Okay. And Denny's is a restaurant. I don't know if there's, they're still around. And I went to a Denny's late at night. I was out with friends. We went to a movie. We stopped at Denny's for the usual late night meal. And uh, I was working on a book with Raymond at the time. And they said, well, what are you working on? I told them what I was doing, a book on near-death experiences. And a good majority of the people at the table said, I don't, they don't, those don't, that doesn't believe. They're very skeptical about it. That doesn't happen. I don't believe that. So it was late at night. And I'm in this Denny's. There's probably 20 people in there. So I stood up and said, hey, here's what I'm working on right now. I'm a writer. I'm working on uh, a book on near-death experiences. I described the near-death experience. How many people have had this? And about 15 of the people had I said they had either had it or they had witnessed it 
or they had witnessed some similar phenomenon in their family. Yeah, their grandmother passing over and having uh, a terminal lucidity moment. Uh, some people had had heart attacks and had gone up tunnels, things like that. They had never been really willing to talk about that. Uh, but once they're given once they're given the door to go through, and and uh, an opportunity to speak about it, they realize that they're these are far more common than uh, than they ever believed. And I think it's that commonality of the spirit that it that brings people together. And it's that's part of the reason that commonality of the spirit is part of the reason that that we all say that we're all we're all made of the same thing. We're all tied together. And I think that's very true. I think that's uh, realization to many people. I've come to realize to talking with thousands of people who've had these life reviews. In terms of your question, Eric, in terms of, um, you know, are we all connected? Well, obviously we are in this life review because you, you see that in the life review, you see that you are the person and you are in the consciousness of the person within you. And I just love that saying by the Meister Eckhart, who said, the eyes with which I see God are the same eyes with which God sees me. I think of that often, that, you know, it's like what I'm experiencing right now, God is experiencing too, and he's watching all of these, you know, infinite number almost of life narratives interweave. I can see my own life from the first-person perspective, and, you know, in the life review, you realize that everybody you meet, you're connected with. That's interesting. Okay, I have a question that I ask the experiencers that I talk to. Let's get a perspective from your personal. This is personal about you guys again. How much fear of death do you have on a scale of one to 10? How much fear? I have to say first, see, I've dealt as a clinician with a lot of people because of their fear of death. Okay, so what the first thing I ask them is, what is your fear of death? See, I'll tell you where mine is, is pain. I've had kidney stones and gallstones. Please, no more pain. Then other people are afraid, for example, of oblivion. And I'm not afraid of that, you know. And, uh, and then other people are afraid of the separation from their loved ones. Count me in, you know. I just, I'd love to be able to stay with my kids a while longer because they're you know, still coming along other people are afraid of hell because of their you know their severe religious background or whatever it's different people are and and many people are afraid of the unknown and the unknown has never been scary to me it's the known that scares me and so i think that's it's just a panoply of different Emotions people identify as the fear of death, and you first have to identify which one a particular one or ones a particular person is suffering with. And to me, the residual is still pain. Okay, I'm going to take out of this equation leading up to death, all the pain and misery that someone may go through leading up to death, the actual time when my heart stops and there's either oblivion or there's something else. 
do you have fear of what's beyond that? I have, I don't think it's reasonable to tell people that you shouldn't have a fear of death. I mean, it's something that's so totally new in a person's life. They, they hear about it, but, but it's when it finally happens to them, it's a whole different animal. I think everyone greets it in their own way, whether greets is the right word. And I'm nervous about it because it's a totally new experience. But um, afraid of death, I don't know if I really think I'm totally afraid of it. Other than it finally, we finally get to answer the question that we've been trying to answer all these years with all the books we've done and all the research we've done, is, is we finally get the answer. So it'll be refreshing in that way, but uh, but I'm still nervous, and I'll admittedly say I'm fearful of death. Thank you. It appears also on your um, on your theory of personal identity, and that's a big question in this whole thing of life after life. If there's survival, what is it that survives? And where we came in was with Alcmaeon, actually, and Pythagoras. Um, came up with the notion of the immaterial, immortal soul. And then Plato made that official, and the church, the Christian church, took the Plato's Phaedo as the basis of their theology of the afterlife, which may seem startling to some, but I found out that in Bertrand Dressel's History of Western Philosophy when I read it in 1964, but he's not an expert, so when I started teaching philosophy, I, I ask experts on on religious studies whether that's true, and they say, yeah, the Christian theology of the afterlife and the immortal soul comes from Plato's Phaedo. And, and so for, you know, you could be burned alive for questioning that for hundreds of years, but then once things started loosening up, like Thomas Hobbes in the 1500s, he pointed out that it doesn't make any sense to talk about an immaterial the, you know, object. And and so then Locke, who was, had to do with the formation of our constitution, as you know, Locke said, well, our personal identity consists of our consciousness and our memories. Then a little while later, the great skeptic David Hume, looking inside himself, said, when I look inside myself, I'm all I see is the impression of the moment. There's never anything statement. So his idea was that, which is in some modern psychologists now, it's like the self is a kind of illusion or doesn't really exist. But where I've come to that is, I think that your personal identity is your story, right? What am I? I am the story of a guy who was born in Porterdale, Georgia, June 30th, 1944, who did this, that, this, bears the name of Raymond Moody. And, and, and so I think that the nature of personal identity has to do with narrative. That it, you know, think about it. Whenever anything new happens to you, what you do is your mind automatically integrates that event into your continuing life story, right? And cinematographers have found it's called the Kulikov effect, I think. But if you present any two random objects to people like a, Coke can and a pair of glasses, and you present those in sequence to somebody, then the mind automatically starts weaving a story to connect the two. 
So consciousness itself is is narrative based. And that's why I think that David Hume, in his great skeptical essay about the nature of the afterlife, in which he pointed out that it's logically incomprehensible. But then he went on to say that he felt that the only kind of, of uh, afterlife that a, and a rational person could entertain would be reincarnation. And he doesn't elaborate why, but I suspect that, you know, Hume was mainly a historian. So he understood the, the relevance and the importance of narrative in human affairs. So it would make sense that of all the afterlife views, the reincarnation is the most story-like. That's one thing that people at thinking about the afterlife have not really adequately accounted for is the narrative nature of consciousness. Okay, you guys being researchers, you're going to hate the next question. The last time I asked one of these, you called it the million-dollar question. I'm just going to throw out something that I sometimes ponder on just to see if you have any opinions from all of the research that you've done. And that is that some people tell us during their NDEs, I was given a choice of whether I wanted to come back and stay. Other people are just told, you're going back. Okay, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for both that we don't understand. What I ponder is how many people are given the choice, you can stay here or you can go back, but those people choose to stay. And those we don't ever hear from. That's right. Yeah. Any thoughts on that topic? It's hard to hard to come up with an analysis of that. <laughs> right. It is. And it's, you know, some people say, how did you get back? I don't know. One moment I was in this light, the next moment I was back on the oh the operating room table with no sense of transition. Some people say that this light or a relative and friend who's died there says it's not your time yet, you've got to go back. Others are given a choice. You can either stay in the experience you're having or go back. And obviously, all the ones I've talked to made that, you know, chose to come back. And so, as you say, it's, you know, it's, there's no basis to, to contemplate or to think about what happens to somebody who chose to stay. Yeah, I mean, let me put it this way, though. It, and when you, do, when you do interviews with people who've had near-death experiences, they frequently say, I wanted to stay, but I couldn't. I didn't. Or, and whether they were given the option or not, uh, they they came back and they maybe didn't like that they came back because it was so wonderful over there. I had not seen a study on that. That would be an interesting study to, to post a near-death experience, to ask people if they would rather be there than here. I haven't seen that. But I think the vast majority can really like it. I hear all the time people say uh, there's a kind of nostalgia that, uh, and, and, and my friend George Ritchie talked about this with respect to his patients. And he said often when he was, uh, you know, interviewing a patient or whatever, he would have this kind of flash and a kind of nostalgia and, and a sort of momentary connection. It's kind of like going your your first trip to Italy. You you always want to go back because <laughs> it's so beautiful and yeah. different. Well, and you might miss it. Yeah. A lot of people say it felt so much like home that they really miss it very much. A couple other things. 
As a host of this podcast, where I'm mostly interviewing people that have had near-death experiences, what other questions should I be asking? Any thoughts that it would help me and help our audience? I would ask them, uh, how has having a near-death experience affected your your social life, if you want to you know, nail it down to specifics? I think that's one thing I would do. Ask them how it's affected their relationship with their spouse. That's a good one. Really, really to bring it into uh, yeah, a hard perspective, yeah. A question I often ask people, I, I don't know if you know this, Eric, but I was a forensic psychiatrist that worked in a maximum security unit for the criminally insane. I probably interviewed, as a minimum, 300 people who committed homicide. More, more realistically, probably about 400, because you lose track. Right. And so um, I always ask people, how has this done to your your unloving side? Hmm. It's what people say is um, that even after this experience where you see the importance of love, that then you come back to your life as a human being. And it's still very difficult to negotiate anger and stuff like that. George Ritchie said to me, he said, Raymond, he said, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. Because you see the ideal, but then in the reality, you fly off the handle as George did sometimes. And so, you know, that is something I ask people, like, how has it affected the fact that you're a human being who still has all these outbursts and stuff. Yeah. Back to your topic of shared death experiences. We had on this podcast a while back, um, Hadley Vallajos, uh, known as Nurse Hadley. I don't know if you guys know her. Oh, yeah, right. Here. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a hospice nurse, young hospice nurse. And oh. she told some really interesting, amazing stories that experiences that she had being with people as they died as they passed on, um, they didn't seem to fit so much into your definition of a shared death experience, but she was there and she observed them very often seeing loved ones, talking to loved ones, things like that. I don't know if you consider that part of a shared death experience also. Yeah. Well, I wasn't thinking in those terms, but you see this all the time. I, I remember the first time I saw it, and it, an elderly woman, I think she was about 80, and I went into the room, and she was talking to someone. So I went in the room, sat down beside her. She said, oh, Dr. Moody, I know what you're thinking. So like, you, you think this old woman is just crazy. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm beginning to get it. <laughs> You know, I I knew that she was talking to her relatives. Well, and for Hadley, she had been an atheist, and this made her a believer that there is something more because she's witnessed it so many times. Well, I'll say about that, too. A a lot of people have near-death experiences become less religious but more spiritual. And then there are people who become more religious. Like uh, occasionally you run into into, uh, NDEers who, who leave their protestant church and they go into a catholic church because they like the structure so it's it's sort of all over the place sometimes what these experiences do to people okay lastly before we sign off here 
I try to leave at the end of these discussions people with some kind of a message of hope. You know, we live in we live in a tough world, and it's sometimes it's hard to believe. As you have met with so many people, I'm sure one of the commonalities that you've also come across is their feeling of extreme love. Many describe it as God's love. Can you think of a couple of times that people have described that to you? Could you describe it to us? Wow. Well, one interesting thing about it is they say you can't describe it. It's, uh, you know, it's so far beyond anything we've experienced as love in this world. And and one way I think about it is, you know, love is, there's so many different types of it. In America, the romantic love seems to be in most people's minds as sort of the core. And, and uh, what I think about romantic love is, I mean, I haven't really studied it. I've just observed in books, but I've observed it. I don't know the etymology, but I do know that romantic love, in the French anyway, roman is a novel. And so what I think that romantic love is, it's, I've heard it described as a religion of two people. What the people in romantic love are focused on is their story, right? Like how they met, how and and so the and that's how I think of romantic love. It's focused on the story of how they met and the adventures and so on. And then there's all kinds of other love as well. But I think everybody's tried to describe this love for me, you know, for to me that. They experience that. They say there isn't any way. Paul, do you remember any specific ones? Well, I, I've heard a lot of people who, when they say, after my near-death experience, I realize that it's all about love. The world's all made of love. And they're embarrassed to say it. And I think in part because it's indescribable. And and they'll say, well, you know, it's, but I don't know what I really mean. You know, I can. I just know that the world is is about love for one another and, and unity. And but I I don't really know why it's like that. I don't know what I really mean when I say that. So I think it's the the thing I would give to people is it's it's so wonderful. It's ineffable. You know, I think that's we have to be honest with that. It's so wonderful that it's ineffable. Yeah, and what I've really come to out of all of this is that you know life necessarily has troubles and turmoil yet the general the message i get from everybody i've talked with who have had these profound near-death experiences is that all that troubling aspect and the the agony and so on as soon as you're out of here that it has a whole different prospect to it that you you see those things not as terrible things but as learning events and so on Eric, in 1967 or 68, I was a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Virginia. A Broadway musical comedy came came through town. It was a touring company from New York. And I forgot what the musical was. But I remember that in the musical, there was this terrific comic villain, complete with the black top hat and the black cape. And he was just, you know, palpably mean. (laughs) And so, all right, now, the play is over, the curtain comes down, and then the hero and heroine come out for their curtain call, and it's, yeah. (laughs) Then the 
the supporting actors and actors come come streaming out and swoop across the stage and it's yeah and then the villain came out <laughs> in the spotlight and i was sitting on the front row so this very obvious silence <laughs> just like dead silence <laughs> and you know it seemed like it went on for an eternity but well, a second or two i don't know but it was just very palpable that silence <laughs> And then behind me, I heard a collective, <gasps> like a lot of people kind of come into the senses at once that, oh, this is a play. And then you heard a few scattered around and then, and then, and then he got the loudest applause of all. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's kind of how it happens in your near-death experience. People who in life, may seem like they're you know the big villain that very often in the life review people say well that was a necessary part of the goodness of the story to himself is that my point here is that the the change of perspective on your life that you get in this life review is so radical uh, you know that it's just i've only known one person that i know of who had a i knew her before her near-death experience and afterwards and this was a young woman uh, that I met when I was a, a resident, and I was doing a, a, a rotation in hematology. So one of the people, the patients that I had in that service was this young woman who was just a wonderful young woman. She was uh, maybe in her early 20s, just a very fine person. And so she had a platelet problem. And so they were worried that during her delivery, she was pregnant, that, you know, that this would cause problems. So that's why the hematologists were there to try to get the platelet problem solved. And so then I, I got off the rotation. That was the end of my rotation. So I left before she had her baby. Now, flash forward about three years later, and I was in the middle of the night, I was sitting in the hospital, right? cafeteria i was on call for psychiatry that night and this presence swept in i mean there's really no way to describe this she her when i had met her three years before her hair was blonde this presence who swept in it was like there was it's hard to describe but she was so light and and she came down the side said, oh dr moody you don't remember me, but three years ago, I was in the hospital with platelet pump. It came back, and she said, and then shortly after you left, baby delivered, and I had a cardiac arrest. And she said that, um, that when she told the nurses that they said, that, oh, that Dr. Moody was there a few weeks ago, studies this. So that was the connection. But my point here is to change in this person is just in, indescribable. It was like, like a totally different person. I mean, I wouldn't have recognized her unless she had, she had said who she was. It was just, a, it's still astonishing to me to this day to think about that. And that, of course, would be a very difficult thing to study since we don't know who's going to have the NDEs prior to. We can't study them the before. Yeah, that's right. But the you know, the reason she was there in the hospital was that this experience had made she took up nursing. 
Yeah, we see that with uh, NDEs as well. People change professions as a result of their near-death experience. And, and they leave very well-paying pr professions to uh, uh, focus more on, on uh, people who need their help. That's a pretty amazing experience. Pretty amazing. Any last thoughts you would like to share? Well, let me say one thing. Okay. And I make, well, I make documentary films as well as writing books. And at the end of many of my interviews, I asked the subject one, just one question. What do you think happens when we die? And I'm amazed at how quickly people answer that. They've really given it some thought. One of the people I, I uh, asked that to was Prince Joseph Habsburg, who is uh, a member of the Habsburg clan, used to rule, I guess, uh, Northern Europe, Germany and other places, Austria. And, and I said, well, Joseph, what do you, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And he just lit up and he said, it's going to be the most wonderful experience of my life. It'll be beautiful. It's like jumping out of an airplane and hoping the parachute opens. And I think that's uh, where most people are when it comes to the end time is, is uh, gee, hope the chute opens. I love what Rabelais said. And as he was dying, he said, I, I am going into the great perhaps. You know, to me, though, it's no longer perhaps. I mean, I've just given up. It, you know, and, and to the folks who are listening in, thank you for listening in. I just hope you've you know, gotten something out of this. But it's a subject that I obviously like to talk about. And my whole life experience with this has been it's, uh, it really does. Ultimately, there's no reason to fret and agonize in, in life. Because in the end, it all works out. However, agonizing of it, as I've learned, is part of it. It's like you you get involved in this life by the troubles, and then you die, and then the troubles take on a different demeanor. Well, thank you so much. For the two men that have proof of life after life, I appreciate your time, Raymond Moody and Paul Perry. Thanks a lot for being here. Thanks a lot, Eric. Take care. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and sharing this podcast. If you've had a round trip death experience, we would love to hear from you. Send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Mm -hmm.